The following is a conversation with Ashok D. Pandey, former professor and researcher in earthquake engineering at IIT Roorkee. His work majorly involved in analysis of structures, where he began working on projects related to Idukki Dam, Narora Atomic Power Plant, Power House Structures, and later on moved to earthquake analysis of dam structures, both gravity and rockville dams, and then to fatigue analysis of railway structures. I took his course on numerical methods for dynamic systems during my masters at IIT Roorkee. I have had numerous opportunities to interact and learn from him beyond the official engagement and I still do. And most importantly, he is a humble, down-to-earth and a nice human being to talk to. In this conversation with Ashok D. Pandey, we will explore the world of academics, teaching, education, original thinking and also listen to him talk about his experiences. Hope you enjoy this conversation and I appreciate that you have given us some time to talk to you through this podcast to what this conversation might bring to your job or life as an original thinker and a nice human being. Thank you for doing this. No, no, no. no, So, uh, it's been uh, six years since I took your... uh, course on numerical methods for dynamic right. systems i'll begin with that yeah that was that was one of the course which felt fulfilling yeah throughout my academic uh, setting i really liked your approach the way you taught your course but where did it come from the approach now that's interesting you know uh it's a, you know, these questions are very tough for us to answer because uh, I don't know what my approach was. <laughs> and, okay, let, let, let me just go back to how this whole thing started. Right? Yeah. Like I got an offer at the end of my viva my master's viva, uh, lasted, which lasted almost an hour and 45 minutes. And the last question I was asked was that uh, when are you joining faculty in earthquake engineering department? And till then I hadn't even thought of what I was to do. I hadn't applied anyway. So my response was as soon as you have a vacancy. Now, once this episode took place, after the viva, I went to VK Jain. He was a research scholar in civil, almost like an elder brother. And I told him, I have an offer from Earthquake Engineering Department. This was after your master's? Uh, Yeah, just after my viva. Okay. Like the viva took place in the evening. Yeah. And late evening, I went to his house. Told him, essay is offer hai. And he said, good. Now, some of the dialogue that took place were in Hindi, but I'll stick to English or should I use both? Anything. Yeah. So I said, Dada, mere ko ek offer mila hai, earthquake engineering join karne ka. Yeah. He said, baat achha, baat achha. Tum abarak ho. Tum kya padhaoge? Hmm. Uh, my this thing was forte then was 
एनालिसिस एफएम एनालिसिस सो आई टोल्ड हिम कि फाइनाइट एलिमेंट पढ़ाऊंगा ये सर अच्छा तो नॉन लीनियर एनालिसिस पढ़ा सकोगे अच्छा दादा वो तो अभी किया नहीं है मैंने ये सब तो फिर क्या पढ़ाओगे ऐसे तो न्यूमेरिकल मेथड्स पढ़ा दूंगा दिस वॉज माई स्ट्रेंथ आई थॉट ऐसे न्यूमेरिकल मेथड्स अच्छा सब आता है ऐसे नहीं पढ़ाने लायक तो काफी आता है इसे तो ऑप्टिमाइजेशन किया है क्या ऐसे ढा लीनियर तो कर रखा है इसे नहीं नॉन लीनियर ऐसे वो तो नहीं किया फिर तो क्या खाक पढ़ाओगे सो ऐसे तो फिर क्या मैं छोड़ दू सो वी के जन वाइफ से अरे काय को बच्चे को परेशान करते हो कुछ जरूरी है क्या सो वी के जन से नहीं नहीं ऐसे ही है सो वी के जन से नहीं ले तो लो लेकिन बड़ी दिक्कत होगी तुम पढ़ा कुछ नहीं पाओगे लेकिन एक काम कर सकते हो अच्छा बहुत साइड इसे तुम बच्चों को मोटिवेट कर सकते हो एंड दैट इज द अंडरलाइंग प्रिंसिपल ऑफ ऑल हैव डन इन द फोर्टी इयर्स ऑफ मोर सो सो आई नेवर रियली टॉट यू ऑल आई जस्ट मोटिवेटेड यू ऑल टू लर्न एंड ग्रो ऑन योर ओन आत्मनिर्भर भारत दे डिस्कवरिंग नाउ वी डिस्कवर्ड इट टूगेदर सो दैट्स वॉट आई फाउंड इट डिफरेंट वेन वी टीच लाइक यूजली वेन यू लेक्चर अ क्लास और टीच अ सेट ऑफ पीपल स्टूडेंट्स सो वन थिंग इज वी अज्यूम अ पर्सनैलिटी वेर वी थिंक आई एम द टीचर बिकॉज आई नो सो एंड सो एंड यू आर गोइंग टू लिजन टू इट बिकॉज यू डोंट नो सो दैट टेक्स अवे द Uh, essence of finding the truth or finding uh, following a quest to find out things together true so that was i think that was different because your lecture never felt like it was a lecture because i'll tell you why yeah. there was there were uh, people who usually skip lectures right so they weren't willing to skip your lecture even if they <laughs> even if they was uh, late by 10 or 15 minutes they would just rush back and just sit down in the class ask for what 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 has happened in the past 5 to 10 minutes i would i would just be surprised when oh my god <laughs> so that, that like how how these guys uh used to usually skip the other classes but they were they weren't actually willing to skip the classes i mean uh what i mean to say is they are they enjoy the process of learning but there should be something which you think you consciously put an effort in while you while you teach well uh, the way you put it uh i think you know it's a two way reaction when i enter a class i have in mind that today i'm going to tell them how simple whatever i'm going to teach today really is yeah because when i was doing my masters right and even uh, i'll say starting from school the seniors would say ye subject or ye topic bahut tough hai hmm there was always a curiosity what is meant by tough i mean 
do I have a limited brain that is going to be incapable of assimilating hmm. the concept, underlying concepts? Hmm. Are they that complicated? So, with that kind of a thing, when I came to civil, uh, do my master's in civil over here at Roorkee, Dr. Trikha had come back from Swansea. Hmm. Dr. Nayak came subsequently, right? And uh, it was like this that most of the research scholars, master's students, everybody was so overawed with finite elements. Means it's too complicated. Okay. And uh, that was in the beginning days of, I mean, finite element was there much before that, right? Yeah, finite element, we we go back to 56 or so, Mm. when Aryaris really laid the foundation stone for it. Yeah. Right, in a more formal manner. It's just that Zinkiewicz, he had this showmanship which Nayak inherited. He, He, I mean, those were people who could make, you know, Drawing a straight line with the ruler. Okay. Such a big event that oh. you could actually have the press coming in to cover it. <laughs> yeah. So, with that kind of a thing, when it started, uh, I was lucky that uh, Dr. Nayak asked me to modify a program written by D.V. Phillips for Mesh Generation. For what? Mesh Generation. Mesh Generation, yeah. yeah. And uh, with not much, uh, I would say, documentation available, I really had to go through theory to be able to debug the program and modify it. Okay. And I think it was a good thing that I was given the program to modify because unless you're rock sure with hmm. the theory, hmm. you can't really program anything. Yeah. So then I understood what shape functions actually were, hmm. how they are used, how they can be manipulated. Okay. And, uh, well, we did use that kind of a thing at subsequent stages. I used shape functions for uh, even time domain interpolation. Cross-sectional interpolation of River Brahmaputra. Okay. So, when I discovered that these things were really not that difficult, hmm. so then it was there was always this uh, thing that I need to let the students know that it's not as complicated as people make it out to be. Yeah. The, the same thing was, uh, was true with regard to your matrix analysis of structures. When we were taught, it was like everything was over everybody's head. Hmm. But a small group of friends, we were more interested in finding out or exploring. And, uh, yeah, the basics of stiffness uh, matrix analysis, I think uh, we were able to grasp. And once you understand the basics, the rest is really easy. So throughout, Mm. uh, I think, my approach would have been to really start from the most basic steps and show that the subject matter isn't that complicated. Yeah. I mean, classic example, 
which uh, I think was, is one of my favorites, is that when we are learning your central difference method, hmm. right, then your uh, Newmark's beta and stuff like that. So I would say that uh, let's skip this topic because you all have done it in school. Because the whole basis used to be what? S is equal to UT, right? Uniform velocity. S is equal to UT plus half FT squared. Uniform acceleration. And that would, you know, like that association give, give the students, I think, a lot more confidence to build up from there. I think that about sums up, you know, because if somebody can correlate with something they already know, then it's very easy to build up on that. That also requires you have a strong base or build a strong base if you don't have. Yeah, true. The other thing was that the abstraction that was involved in, I would say, a person's school background or undergraduate studies of uh, just using a formula, whatever it be, whether it was finding out square roots or whatever, that myth had to be broken that uh, a person needed to know from where that formula has come, what it implies. Because as engineers, we need to take decisions in places where uh, a lot of gray areas will exist, so many variables will exist. And unless a person is capable of independent thought in a rational manner, it becomes difficult to take those decisions. So the emphasis had to be to make the students think. Yeah. And I don't know how successful I've really been, but well, I tried. Yeah. So when you say the ability to generate an independent thought yes. and a rational basis. How did you do that? Because no one does it consciously, but according to you, what, what do you think? No, it had to be prodded. So, uh, in order to do that, I would start with, you know, uh, defining what we are going to do. Uh, and the purpose of doing it, because... If you don't know in which direction it's going to go, then it's meaningless. Uh, I, I think the first thing really in order to learn something is to be motivated towards it. Yeah. If I know that by learning a particular topic or whatever, right, what what all I can achieve, then I'd be more motivated towards learning. Yeah. I, it would, I think, uh, generate a little bit more interest rather than you know, uh, out of the blue, somebody comes up with a topic and let's do this without assigning a reason. Uh, that's meaningless. So that was one. Yeah. The second was that ask the student, it was an interactive session and I could pick up anybody randomly. There were times when I would pick up the weaker guys. Why? Not to shame them really but to prompt them into the process. Yeah. That no, just because your performance is not that good doesn't mean I'm not going to ask you. You're just as good for me as the brightest in the class. So I've picked on the brightest, I've picked on the weakest, I've sat by the brightest, I've sat by the weakest. Yeah. Because the tragedy was that when I started teaching, I started with very few students. So I 
always had a bad habit of trying that one-to-one interaction. Okay. Now, how successful it was, how offended the students may have felt, I don't know. (laughs) I think that worked well. Yeah. Yeah. So, there was another aspect about your uh, course was you, the question papers you had weren't descriptive. I mean, you had only a question and filled the answer. Like, unlike all the rest of the courses. So, I, I I once heard you telling about how, what kind of a dilemma you faced when you are, you know, grading a paper between... I, I think uh, you've touched upon a very delicate subject. After so many years of teaching, uh, I realized that uh, at some stage, when I was evaluating the descriptive question answers yeah. and I think it was fairly early in my career I felt that uh, the marks awarded depended on so many things right uh, because we had a very small class so I could tell by the I mean the name of the candidate was obviously there and uh, it, it would depend on my mood, I will say. If I'm in a foul mood, I might mark more strictly. Mm. If I'm in a lighter mood or in a more congenial mood, mm. I might award marks more uh, graciously, I will say, or generously. Yeah. And I always had this feeling of guilt that have I done justice? At one stage I felt, no, I don't think I've done justice. So then the question arose, how can I be fair in my dealing with this issue? And the only sort of thing that came to my mind was, break it down to a binary situation, right? Binary situation means he's got the answer right of a small portion, so I had to break the question into such parts that uh, sort of elicited smaller responses. And uh, those would be the more critical areas of the solution process. Okay. So then once I got into the binary, it was either full marks or zilch over there. Now later I modified, I would look to see if the student had actually done any calculation. Okay. If there was no calculation, even if his answer was right, it was wrong. So how how did you look at the calculation? Because well, since it's yeah, I, only I would always start by uh, first going through all the responses without looking at names. Yeah. So I get a feel for how well the class has understood that particular subject. Hmm. After going through that, then I start the actual marking. Okay. Right? And if a person's answer was right, yeah. I would check to see has he done any calculation. Yeah, on the on the uh, answer sheet. On the answer sheet. Okay. So if you thought I never looked at your answer sheet, guess again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember, but whatever I did, I think I. <laughs> there were times that. when uh, I found that two students had identical identical answers, right? Yeah. No calculation. And the answer matched with somebody's. So I would write on the answer script that this 
the marks have been awarded to the person who did it. <laughs> right? <laughs> so you can take from him if you want or whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I was, uh, I didn't like anybody copying in an exam. You know yeah. why? Because, uh, the exam marks, they, they yeah. don't make your career. They don't, in fact, they degrade you as an individual if you've cheated. Yeah. I mean, you, you have a conscience. Some stage in life, uh, you may feel otherwise. I, I don't know. Yeah. It varies from individual to individual. Yeah, even uh, there was uh, about exams in general. Yeah. So I think I've shared it with you earlier, but I'll uh, share it again. There was a essay I read by uh, Paul Graham. He's yeah. a, uh, he runs the Y Combinator. It's a seed investing company. So he, he wrote an essay called uh, A Lesson to Unlearn, where he correlates our behavior to hack hacking yeah. behavior, yeah. which we... Uh, unconsciously pick up by hacking the exams. True. So, in the sense, the person who tops the class doesn't necessarily mean he has copied, but he has found a way to hack the exam. True. So, that we carry on to the other parts of our lives where we, if you want to just do some work, so we'll just find a way to hack a task or something where we can just, you know, uh, succeed. So, that that that's what uh, I think unconsciously trains us. A lesson to unlearn. Yeah, yeah I, I I think uh, yeah the author has a point, hmm. right? And uh, that was one reason why I made my question papers right at the last moment. Yeah. Uh, many of you, my students, may not know about it, but I would get up at, and come to the department at five four thirty four in the morning. Uh, think about the questions, think about your doubts in class. On the basis of that, I would make my question paper. Okay. Because if I made my question paper before, yeah. and after I make a question paper, somebody asked me something relevant to a question over there, mm. then I would be in a dilemma as to to what extent do I yeah. help him out or explain things to him. Yeah. There could be a tendency for me to divulge yeah. contents of the paper yeah. and I didn't want to feel guilty of that. Okay, so that necessarily gives him an advantage yes. that he yes. he's unconsciously hacking your question paper. Uh, put it yeah, that's, yeah, that's one way of looking at it, I'd say. Hmm. But I always wanted to have a clean conscience. That's yeah. about it. Yeah, that's nice. Whether it was marking or setting the question paper, yeah. things like that. Exams are this part of it, so I don't want to... Yeah, just true. Exams say. is not... A uh, very important part because um, uh, my opinion is that an examination is just an assessment of a person's ability within a three-hour duration or a two-hour duration, whatever it be, yeah. right, on a particular day, right, with regard to a particular set of questions. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. This isn't as simple as it sounds, right? Let us say somebody studies just one night and the sort of 10 questions he did, five of them come in the question paper. So here, here we have a guy who's going to score very high without really understanding the subject. Uh, on one occasion, very early in my career, I had this uh, person, Padmanabhan. He was like, uh, I think, SE, superintending engineer, when I was a graduate trainee in PWD. 
Where it is? CPWD, Delhi. Delhi. What time it was? Um, this is way back, 75. I, I took my training in, uh, I think, 70-71. Okay. Right? Yeah. And Padmanabhan was here in 75. So, Padmanabhan, I mean, um, with his experience and his background, he was uh, like able to quote more references than some of the faculty members. Okay. Right? His background was solid. And... Uh, a uh, very soft-spoken person. And uh, he was more interested in you know, learning whatever he could. So, he, he was scoring in the 90s in most of the subjects. And uh, I think I was teaching them uh, potent programming and numerical methods. So, he, he was doing all right. But just before the exam, his father expired. And in that in the final exam, he scored very low marks. He passed, of course. Low, very low marks means 60-something. Now, for a person who's scoring in 90s and suddenly he comes down to the 60s, you feel bad about it. So, then I realized that, yeah, this examination thing is not really uh, a measure of how much a person truly knows. So, tell me about any favorite books or any, there can be any number of books which you think had a very big impact in your life or the person you are. Now, when it comes to books, I mean, my interests have been very varied, very, very varied. So, I would say it'll be better if I start with the academic aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, it can be anything. One of my favorite books was uh, Numerical Analysis by Scarborough. Uh, my elder brother bought it for me. Those days it cost 10 rupees. And uh, I, I liked the way it was written. And uh, I, I think, you know, my interest in numerical analysis really stemmed from that one book. That was one. The other book was Thompson. Calculus made, made Easy by Thompson. Calculus Made Easy. I like that book. I, I recently came across it. Yeah, yeah. So, it's a very, very nice book <laughs> in the sense. Unfortunately, you know, what happened was that my introduction to Thompson was at such a stage when I had gone past the contents of the book. Okay. But I did go through the book to some extent. I won't say I read the whole book. Yeah. Right. And... The way he put things was truly fascinating. And if you consider my background, when I joined BHU first year engineering, I hadn't done statics, I hadn't done dynamics, I hadn't done coordinate geometry, I hadn't the foggiest idea about differential calculus or integral calculus. It was like, you know, for me, all Greek and Latin. Like in thermodynamics, they used to have a, a CHU units and a BHU units or whatever that was. <laughs> I think it was British thermal units, but I, I don't know. I couldn't get out of the, yeah, yeah. this thing. that uh, I'd refer to them as the BHU units and the CHU units. Okay. So it, it was very, very difficult, you know. And uh, I will say uh, second year of engineering in BHU, I got a back paper in 
uh, integral calculus and uh, electrical technology. Okay. So, I had gone back to the hostel during the vacations to prepare for my back papers. And uh, one of my seniors, he told me that it would not be worthwhile, you know, sort of trying to prepare for the back papers. Because he said earlier, you tried on your own, you didn't do too well, right? So there's no point in your again trying on your own. You need some more inputs. So he said third year, you have uh, Dr. Shantiram Mukherjee. He'll teach you integral calculus. And he said, hey, to muska class miss karega, to tera khandan mein kisi ko calculus nahi aega. So I took his advice seriously. I uh, went over to my grandmother's place locally. And uh, when the session started, I was back there. But I made it a point to go and sit for Shantiram Mukherjee's classes well before time. Uh, I was told that you sit right up front, he talks softly. And Shantiram Mukherjee started with multiple integrals. But the way he explained multiple integrals, linking them to areas and volumes, it became such a simple subject that I've never had problem with integrals subsequently. And once I understood integrals, then the derivatives just fell into place. So I will say that Thompson's book, when I look back, it's, you know, almost like Shantiram Mukherjee. So these are two of my favorites, really. Then another book, apart from uh, Scarborough that I liked, was a book on FEM by Beaufort, Rowan, and two more authors. That also explained FEM in a very basic manner. Like a primer? Yeah, it was like a primer. Okay. A and of course, uh, I read a whole lot, many books, you know, which have influenced the way uh, I think, the way sort of I worked. A, lo a lot of programming was involved in the early stages. And I'll say, good many books, good many authors contributed to that. I may not be able to do justice by remembering or ignoring or forgetting some of their names. So it's best to avoid that. But yeah, when it comes to teachers, uh, we had, uh, I was in UK for some time and uh, I was stuck with an integral, you know. It was like uh, minus infinity to plus infinity, the integral of uh, u minus x dot mod of the whole thing into u minus x dot du. And uh, I must have spent about, I'll say, six weeks going through, you know, all kinds of mathematical handbooks and so on and so forth. And uh, I had gone through the UCL library, that is University College London. I went through the archives and so on and so forth. Nothing. I then went to one of the bigger libraries, the British Library, tried over there also. And, you know, it was like a very frustrating affair. Then uh, one of my friends, Robert Caroline, he's a PhD from Loughborough. He suggested that why don't you go down to Dr. A.M.J. Davies. He was in maths at UCL. Mathematics professor. Mathematics. 
So I told Bob that, look, I, I don't know Dr. Davies and why should he help me out? So Bob Carolyn said that, look, uh, you have a problem. You've been stuck with it for a long time. You go to him, right? If he doesn't help you out, you're still stuck there. Yeah. You haven't lost anything. But if he helps you out or whatever he does, helps you in solving the problem, then you stand to gain. So you have nothing to lose, but it's something to gain kind of a proposition. I took his advice and went up. Uh, I remember that day, it was uh, very close to winter vacations. And uh, the college was more or less deserted. You know, the, the high-rise buildings, all sides. And this building was right at the corner with a very ancient kind of a lift. You, you had that ch chain kind of a door and so on and so forth. Okay. So I go up to his room, knock on the door. I hear a voice say, enter. I come in. I see this man. He's looking out. There's just one window. He's looking out at the London skyscape. And I told him, um, Dr. Davies, I'm Ashok Pandey from Marine Tech. And I have a problem with an integral. So without turning back, he said, uh, write it on the board. I wrote it on the board. And then he turns around, he's holding a pipe. He looks at the expression and he gives me the answer. So I, he, he wrote down the answer. He said, there you are. So I said, sir, that was brilliant. But how did you arrive at it? I mean, I need to know how to be able to solve such problems in future. And then he started describing the function which I had always just looked at a collection as a collection of variables. And that explanation, he broke the integral into three parts. He said, this part will be negative, this part will be zero, and this part will be positive. And this is how it goes. It behaves like the error function. So you have the sum of two error functions, and that is your solution. That day, I think, changed my life forever. I don't look at things as variables, right? I try to visualize the behavior. And that makes things so much simpler. I think, uh, yeah, that's maybe that influenced some of my class teaching. Apart from academic, yeah, I've always been an avid reader. Uh, read most of Sherlock Holmes. But it was more the DIY books, you know. But yeah, one book I think I, I, I cannot forget was uh, Bertrand Russell's Conquest of Happiness. I'd borrowed it for a friend, rather from a friend. And uh, those days, I would finish a novel at night. Every night I read a new novel. Okay. Right? A reading speed was phenomenal. And... Uh, I found, you know, that it was easier for me to relax and catch up with sleep. So, Bertrand Russell's uh, novel I bought, I hadn't picked it up for a few days. And then my friend, he said that, uh, look, can I have it back? Somebody else wants it. So I told him, okay, you take it tomorrow. I read that novel, or rather, I read that book that night, and... Uh, we used to get our newspapers in the evening, you know, early evening, or late afternoon. Uh, next day, in the newspaper, it was that Bertrand Russell expired. 
Okay. So I can never forget that book. Of course, there may be many others which... What was the book about? Conquest of happiness. I mean, like, what are the individual's attitudes should be and so on and so forth. But, uh, yeah, when I read a book, I know one thing, I'm getting an individual's perspective on the subject. If I read more books similar in a similar manner, I get their perspectives. It gives me a, you know, a better holistic view of the situation, whatever aspect it is, whether it's technical, non-technical, spiritual, whatever. So that is there. That reminds me that uh, even when we, as a professor or as a teacher, so I remember you telling me that if you take a subject, you make sure that you read about the same subject, I mean the textbooks, by different authors. True, true. Yes. Yeah. So that gives you a, a holistic understanding and a different, very wide perspective of True. teaching. When you even when you teach, you yes. you tend to look from different angles. Yes, you notice that I had many books on the same subject. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's uh, important really because see, every individual has a, their own style of writing, and uh, there have been times when. Uh, I found, you know, some of the books, they are a little bit difficult, difficult to comprehend and some people write in a language which is, uh, which makes the subject matter so easy to understand. It, it varies from individual to individual because there are times when I've referred some of my favorite uh, books to a student and he has found that difficult. In fact, he has found something which I found difficult. He has found it easier. So. It varies from individual to individual. And yeah, my suggestion is always there. They try to read from more than one book. You have a broader perspective. That is true. Moving ahead, can you talk about or say what do you think to have your beliefs or your learnings or conclusions who have arrived in the past to be challenged from time to time in future uh, by a new perspective or uh, information. So it's important that we sort of get different perspectives. And I will say as a teacher, the different questions that the students ask it made me look at things from different perspectives. So, I stand enriched in a way. Because once I wrote to a friend of mine, I don't know if I learnt more from them or they learnt more from me. Hmm. That's a fact. I mean, the same sort of a... uh, It was never a run-of-the-mill questions and always encouraged you come to my office, you you catch me on the road, it's okay. You have a doubt, let's attend to it. Rather than, at the moment I'm busy. No. I promised myself that one thing, I'll leave my door open. Whoever wants to come in, to come. <laughs> that takes me to how things were when I joined Masters in the Institute. We were uh, just uh, pestering the professors that, uh, which textbooks, this, this is alright, this is the course content, this is the syllabus, it's okay, tell me the textbooks. From where you are going to ask us the questions and so that we can prepare and get good marks. 
it became very evident that this is not going to uh, work and this is not how masters is going to be <laughs> yes i've had that question on a few occasions and uh, i would just say that look i'm not following any textbook i'm following the nomenclature as i found most easy to understand as a student right and uh, as far as books go there are many books you go pick up whichever one you want to learn the basics of the subject but finally decisions have to be your own and it has to be based on reason because as an engineer i think one has a much greater responsibility i mean as civil engineers let us say there's a dam analysis right and uh, somehow my uh, analysis shows that the structure is safe i would not be able to still rest peacefully you know there's always a doubt did i miss anything have i underestimated any of the loading parameters and that was one reason i would always take you know water level right up to the crest i never left any clearance no. hmm. is better to be safe than to be sorry right and if it is safe from that perspective then definitely i know i'm on the safer side that comes out i mean that or uh, the ability to you know think in a direction to be able to reason out with with conviction or to be sure yeah. about uh, how things are going to be how to go things are going to act so that that requires very rudimentary knowledge about the physics or sciences or maths or anything because if that's if that is not there we are always looking towards the other complicated things to just get through that problem for time being yeah you're right uh it may sound a little bit odd or surprising whatever but i have always laid greater emphasis on the basics basic definitions right and uh, for our example in our case the single degree of freedom system you'd be surprised how many de- decisions are made basing on that and uh, not just that for example if a force is being calculated and there are four terms on the right hand side then each of those terms must be a force hmm. i cannot add different entities and end up with a force no yeah if i have area on one side then all the other entities on the other side must relate to areas right i think in one of the exams i gave a or tests or whatever i gave that problem that there's a peculiar shaped listing and its moment of inertia is this right and all the terms had l to the power of 4 except one term which had uh, the dimension of l cubed and uh, people were guessing that this could be for this section this could be but there were one or two who said that this cannot be a moment of inertia yeah these questions are gay are sort of set just to get a feel for do are the students really thinking because they will have to think tomorrow i need to prepare them today yeah that was the i think major driving force but if the if the teachers themselves are not uh, looking in that direction so the whole effort goes the other way true see it's it's all a question of uh, how you feel inside you know as a teacher for example i knew what my shortcomings as a student were 
and I wanted to make sure that the students I teach don't have those shortcomings. Any problem I face subsequently, uh, let us say in profession, I wanted to make sure that my students were well prepared to be able to handle that. And so most of the questions like uh, in the tests or exams, etc., it, it could be a one-hour paper, it could be a three-hour paper, whatever. But to tell you the truth, total solution time never exceeded 35 minutes or so, maybe lesser. It's all a question of being able to understand the situation, understand the question, what its implications were, and then taking a decision. For example, uh, I don't know which badge it was, but I gave a question that uh, we have this cantilever, the loads are there, point loads, and uh, while the properties of the cantilever were fixed, the load I'd given the, I think it was a point load, load could be placed anywhere, randomly, right? And uh, the load had a, a mean and variance I had stated. I had asked for the mean and variance of the deflection. Now, after the exams, good number of students say, yeh to course mein thai nahi. I said, haa, nahi tha. Nahi tha, course mein nahi tha. Tum school mein nahi padha kya? Mean nikalna, variance nikalna. Right? It was the same thing. Yeah. Just a transformation of variables. That's all. Aray, sir, aap wo pehle batla deti na. And it was barely a two-minute question with ten marks. So that was, but I'll tell you one thing, it took a lot of effort on my part to be able to pose the questions. I mean, what is it that would make the students really think, right, and enjoy the process? That was, I, I think, the major objective or the driving force. How successful or how unsuccessful that experiment was, I don't know. but. Maybe at some stage they realized that whatever was done was for their benefit. And that reminds me, I was reading a book called Range. Uh, it's about uh, generalist thinking. Right. Uh, there was one particular example the author was talking about was, uh, I don't know which, if it was US Army or some training institute in United States. So they ran an experiment in the sense they also teach all the technical courses to calculus and right. mathematics physics and everything yeah so there were two particular teachers there was a co course on calculus so they had two set of groups one group was taught with the only aim to get good grades i mean the teaching was set in a way the uh, the content was delivered in such a way that the students should be able to get good grades right and the other set of group, they were trained or they were de trained or taught the subject the, or the course was delivered in such a way that they, it's not about getting uh, good grades, but to be able to help them understand the concepts, understand what calculus is and so forth. What happened was at the end, the group one, which were taught to uh, get good grades scored phenomenally right. and the other group subsequently didn't score so good. I mean, the class average yeah, was down, everything fine. was down. The next semester or the next year or whenever it was, the group had to take an advanced calculus. Right. Right? 
so at the end of the second uh, semester or second year i don't remember at the end of the uh, course of advanced calculus the group 2 scored phenomenally hmm. and the group 1 scored very poor that's true that's true so that that really emphasizes how what happens when uh, uh, when the, when there is just a subtle difference in the way you deliver a course or a content yes i i i i totally agree with it see the way i looked at things was that we are teaching the students here to go out as professionals tomorrow right to be able to take independent decisions right without any fear or whatever of their lack of knowledge and uh, most of the students they may have felt that uh, the classroom teaching is hardly relevant to the profession i mean on many occasions i've had students tell me sir ye you teach us this matrix thing right storage and all this so where is it going to be used i say it's not a question of where it is going to be used it is if a situation arises right you'll be in a better situation to take a decision and it is nothing to do with just the matrices it has to do with so many things right which could be looked at as matrices so everything that you learn it goes to mold the way you think in future and that's a fact so what to you is science and engineering is for you personally and how it helped you to be whatever you are science and engineering it's a, a fairly broad spectrum kind of a question but let me put it this way uh after i joined teaching i think i began to realize that things weren't as difficult as you know i was told about in my student days a lot of subjects a lot of topics in different subjects the seniors would say ye bahut tough hai this is too tough or the teacher you know uh, the way he explains you'll never be able to understand it and i realized that no that kind of a approach you know it's a negative approach shouldn't be adopted at all and so because when you look at it really what is engineering my answer has been a very short one really uh engineering is just simple physics very very simple physics and just a little bit of common sense and that's about it and uh, i still have a student who was here about 20 years back he writes to me sir i still follow your advice stick with the physics of the problem it's very basic and uh, i think that boy has been instrumental in some of the major projects undertaken by Larsen and Tubro mm. and uh, i won't be surprised if they've done the analysis for sardar patel statue mm. and there's one more statue coming up uh, trying to recollect shivaji statue or something like that 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 statue is phenomenal in in terms of uh, the structural engineering is yeah true that, I, because that's when i look at it i didn't see it in person but i looked at the scale of it it's so huge <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's true so i mean like uh, i do get feedback and uh, uh, some of the students say, you know are in reasonably senior position i'll say and 
they tend to agree with me that yes, sir, it was, it is straightforward. It's yes, not sir. as complicated as we thought it was, even when we left the institute. And uh, yes, it's simple physics and just a little bit of common sense. And I think if they feel that way, they will pass on that information or that kind of a philosophy down to the next generation. So it's, it's good, you know, rather than scaring the students, you know, about subject, subject content and decision making. No, no, it's, it's not that difficult. No. Uh, see, the biggest tragedy is that uh, right from, uh, I think, primary school, one is more conditioned to study just for tests and exams. And I think parents are guilty for that and teachers are guilty for that. Exams, you know, sort of made out to be such a big thing that if you don't do well in the exams, the child feels if I don't do in the well in the exams, then the world will come to an end. But the tragedy is that from an early age, that kind of a thing is developed, that one studies for the exams. When you look at it objectively, at least from my age, from the perspective I get from my age, is that one is studying for life. I mean, to live, to adjust socially, you know, uh, to follow a profession or whatever. So it's more of that. But it's very difficult, I think, for a young child to be able to comprehend that. Right? Appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, I, I think what needs to be done really is that uh, this myth of the exam as being something, you know, very, very big, that needs to be broken. A child needs to be sort of nurtured in such a manner that learning is a process. It's a fun process and it helps you to grow up. After all, that's what it is about. Because a lot of people say that, uh, like uh, geography, I learned geography, I learned history, I'm doing engineering. It never helped me. Of course, it helped you. Everything is. If I say that uh, Bosnia, you in your mind straight away, you know where the hell it is, hmm. right? There's geography for you. Things like that. You know. I mean, like there, there has to be a reason, and you have to learn about everything in general. When I say everything, means it, it just can't be everything because uh, that's just not possible. But a broad range of subjects so that you can carry on a conversation with some with people, you can interact with people, you can understand what is being uh, sort of uh, uh, passed across on the television or your newspaper, whatever. So that is there. And uh, yes, you're right. The other this thing, uh, more important thing was that when we look back at our education system, a lot of people would have me go back to the time of Gurukul, hmm. right? Gurukul, the students would, or the disciples would come stay at the Guru's place for years, right? Now, obviously, they would have discussed on many aspects and things like that, right? Guru would have tried to pass all his knowledge and the students imbibed it. But in the absence of writing material, etc., etc., in those days, knowledge was passed on by word of mouth. And the only way to retain it was to memorize. So in Vedic maths and things like that, you've got all these sutras and things like that. If I follow Vedic maths, 
I know the sutra, I can solve the problem. But why does the solution emerge? That reasoning would have taken a lot more thinking, right? Which somehow, with the passage of time, people started avoiding. So, mm-hmm. you have a sutra, you have a formula, you can crack any exam. We have a system of learning by rote and just applying it without applying the mind. This somehow would lead to what? It would lead to a loss of original thinking. That's the it will lead to, you know, stumping a person from thinking laterally. Right? Exactly. Going deeper into the subject. And I, I think, you know, what the final result is that we end up having a lot of people who would make good subordinates rather than good leaders. And this uh, I, I can see in so many fields today. You know, that you give a task to a person, he do it very well. The what, why's and wherefores, he has absolutely no idea. I've even come across some students uh, at, uh, I'll say, 10th level, the high school level. That girl, she couldn't explain to me the question, but she wrote the answer perfectly. How on earth is that possible? She's learned by heart the question and the answer. And that was very surprising for me. But is this number growing? That is the biggest worry. And that brings me to one of my inclination towards, you know, uh, nurturing children, which is, I'll put in a perspective, before industrial revolution, right. the scholars who were, they were like Newton, Galileo or uh, Da Vinci or Bruno Leschi, everyone, they weren't taught in a school. They pursued the interests by their own curiosity. I mean, the society's knowledge, science, during that time, mostly was taken forward by these people who were driven by their own curiosity. Then how, uh, when uh, the industrial revolution started, so you got, the education got institutionalized, you wanted to train people to do a particular set of tasks, and that worked very well, so that brought us where we are today. But now I see that... In future, because everything you want to learn is on internet. Everything. The only thing you want to teach your children is how to think originally and they'll figure the stuff out. Right? Yeah. So, why I think it is possible? Because when you take Wright Brothers or Leonardo da Vinci or Bruno Rishi, the the, uh, artists, pursued everything by observing the nature of things and being curious about it. And there was no internet, obviously. So right now, yeah, where you can learn everything on internet. So how far is school education relevant? Because I don't think it's relevant personally. The only thing it's relevant is to teach them how to learn things. Then they'll figure the stuff out. Even Wright Brothers, they never went to school. They pioneered the field of uh, aviation by themselves. Yeah, you're right in many ways. Issue is that today... When uh, most of the material is available on the net, then children can easily have access to it, etc., etc. They can have access to many different perspectives too. The whole issue is, is there a will to look at things from different perspectives? 
we have uh, reached a stage what i call as that of wanting instant gratification that's a i have a task important point i just want enough information that i can complete this task i'm not interested in knowing more about it i'm not even interested in going deeper into what was involved in this particular task so once again this is going to i think uh in general not really produce brilliant points no i mean there there will be exceptions there will be exceptions and uh, when you look at life in reality reality i'll say then celebrities they over us over helmers but we are truly inspired by the unsung heroes you know you come across an individual who uh, in your opinion is a success right uh, the press may not know him right the world may not know him but he has done something which impresses you right he is going to inspire you and uh, no matter which video or how many videos we see to the curious mind there will always be a question which needs to be answered by an individual speaking in a language that he can understand right right sometimes it can be a teacher sometimes it can be a peer because uh, as students we used to ask our uh, classmates right for difficulties if we felt that yeah he he knows he understands and uh, i think it's a, it's a good way to interact and uh, it's very fruitful and like i said before or let me repeat it is that by asking it's always a win win situation you have nothing to lose if you get the answer you want or a pointer in the direction that you want to go uh, it's a winning proposition for you and if the other person doesn't respond favorably well you lost nothing so i still feel that uh, there has to be some kind of a personal interaction between two people for the knowledge to really transmit across and that has to be genuine and i mean genuine in the way that not motivated by the end goal yes true uh, in general i think that if i were to ask a person a question and he knows the answer i think 99% of the time a person would like to enrich the other person with his own knowledge because sharing you know uh, also gives a kind of inner satisfaction or at least that's the way i feel and i'm sure most of the other people feel uh, that the joy of sharing the joy of caring the joy of giving right is a big reward in itself so yes that would be there a genuine interesting need to help the other person out yeah uh, coming back to the original question in the sense that the future maybe after 5 or 10 years i don't think having a institutionalized education is that important as it's right now yeah i i think you're right uh looking at uh, what the pandemic has uh, triggered is education online i mean it's not nothing new it did exist before but not on the scale that it exists now and will continue to exist in future it has accelerated the time it has, yes it has accelerated this 
In fact, uh, the pandemic has acted as a catalyst, right, sure. in bringing education online. But then once again, the quantum of content available, right, the quality of content available, this, I'm sure, will improve with time. But uh, what I've seen of late, I find that uh, there are many uh, lectures, some in NPTEL, where a person is just rattling off something from some textbook. I mean, there's no, he, he's not even making an honest effort to, you know, put into his own words the subject matter. This kind of a content I've seen increasing, and that worries me. Why? The child has access to the same book, right? He can read it off from there. Why watch the video? And in fact, maybe uh, the child would be in a better position or the student would be in a better position to understand if he read from the book himself. But there's a compulsion now that no, the audio-video content is a richer this thing. So if I see the video, I, I'll probably understand more. We are moving away from books. Now, that's bad in more ways than one. Not just academically. I mean, like in our time, we had storybooks, we had comics and, you know, whatever. You read the newspaper and you read the comics in the newspaper. The weekly edition had more comics. We had more fun as children, right? Today, who's reading the newspaper? I stopped my newspaper about six, seven years ago, right? Because I felt the television was giving me enough news. That's true. But how do you remedy the... Because this is... I, I, I don't think uh, even during your days, you know, your college days, I don't think there were only good teachers, but there were also bad teachers then too. But when you wanted to learn something, I think like if someone want to know about something, so he or she had to dive into uh, his own independent pursuits to make sense of what he's trying to understand or make sense of what he's trying to know. So even that applies right now. If something is not making any sense rather than, you know, just accepting what the, the person is telling. So he, he or she has to dive into more other content or uh, go into a pursuit where he wants to actually figure it, figure this stuff out personally. Yeah, you're right. Now that, you know, when there is a genuine desire to know, let us say the teachers, uh, I'm not going to say bad teacher, you know, it's just that it doesn't suit my style or I was unable to uh, sort of uh, follow, uh, follow or whatever uh, because, uh, well, we are all gray in the gray area, you know. There's no, no such thing as a black or white because... Uh, we all have our, you know, strengths and weaknesses and so on and so forth. But looking at that kind of a scenario where I have a teacher, right, and uh, whatever way of style, his style of teaching is, right, I'm unable to have adequate interest in the subject or understand it. Now, wait a minute. I have to be driven by the fact that I am going to be tested. There is going to be an examination and I better pass, right? That's how the system is. So, now if I have to pass, the, the, I have two alternatives. I can just, whatever notes he has given, right, or somebody has made, 
I, I take, borrow those notes, learn from that, learn by rote, and spit it out in the exams, and that's the end of the story. But if there's a genuine desire to learn, the first thing a person does is now start hunting for books on the topic, right? And the minute an individual has that kind of a feeling, that kind of a desire, you know one thing, that individual is going to be different. And you go to one book, it's a bit clearer, but not quite. Then you go to another and another. At the end of that exercise, you stand much richer. And that, I think, it becomes a habit then, right? Because you, you be, I mean, subconsciously you realize that, yes, if I go to more than one reference, right, I stand a better chance of understanding, provided I want to understand, right? The motivation should be there. If the motivation is not there, then the whole purpose is defeated. That has to be nurtured at a very young age. For example, take a seven or eight year old. He yeah. is, he or she is very curious about anything which is, yeah. uh, uh, which he looks, he fancies. So that nature of you know questioning or trying to have a original thought or independent thought is there by nature. You know, I I remember someone saying that reasoning of a ten year old can be more sound than a Nobel Prize winner. Yeah, right. So. What exactly is going wrong with parenting or, you know, the kind of conditioning we are put when you are a seven or eight year old that actually kills that and puts the person in a, you know, herd? Yeah, I, I, I think... Uh, because I look at it as a seed yeah. being sown at that time. True. So once if that seed is sown where you are just asked to follow whatever is being said, then when you grow up and you are just, you know, looking for things, uh, like you said, many people are good subordinates than a good leader. Yeah, that's true. So, because I see it that that's being unconsciously sown when you are a child. Yeah. I think the two people or two groups that are responsible are people at home and people at school. And invariably I find that people at school would have a tendency to Encourage the child to copy from the board and ask questions later, if at all. That means, uh, for example, a child stands up and says, Sir or Miss or Ma'am or whatever. Now, uh, can you please, that person is told, that sit down and copy it just now, right? We can discuss it later. Sometimes they say, just sit down and copy it just now. They are ended the story. And in schools, I think that's more common. I mean, uh, it's rather unfortunate, but at uh, undergraduate and postgraduate levels also it exists, right? That you please sit down and copy it just now. That uh, issue of discuss it later may materialize, may not materialize. So yes, you have a point that that kills the initiative, right? At home also, if a child is curious about something, right, and he is snubbed, then obviously it puts an end to, I think, a budding career or whatever way you want to look at it. I think the environment at home should be such that it encourages a child to be curious. 
whether by supervision or lack of it. When I say lack of it, that means a child has ample opportunity to explore on his own. I mean, let me give you some examples of my early childhood. Summer vacations, I uh, used to go home for the summer vacations because I was studying in a hostel. And uh, afternoon, uh, my dad would be in the office, my mother would take a nap, my sisters would take a nap. And me and my elder brother, we, since we were in the hostel, you're not used to taking naps. So the two of us used to be up. So some days it could be, you know, like experimenting in the kitchen, salt ko heat kar. <laughs> you burn the sugar and see what happens. And then uh, Sindur me it's mercuric something. Mercury extract Right? You do that. And there were occasions when we tried to make a, a, what carbonara clamp, right? We took two batteries. I don't know whether they were in good condition or bad, right? Knock the live daylights out of the batteries, <laughs> pulled out the carbon listing, right? And hooked up the mains and yeah, it was a beautiful bright spark and the pole fuse went. That means something like 15, 20 houses got ditched. Oh. Immediately disconnected everything and we put our halos on our heads and <laughs> pretended to be asleep. <laughs> and my mother got up and electricity is gone and whatever and whatever and when my dad came in the evening and my mother told him and then he went out and you know it was a long drawn affair but yeah it got rectified and uh, nobody discovered at that time that it was just me and my brother who were responsible for this short circuit oh. but it, that is a learning process I mean the nation didn't really go for a six you know mm. right and uh, similarly, like uh, electrolysis of water, right? You took batteries and, you know, uh, took the two leads and into the, this thing. And there are no bubbles. I said, is this water is less hydrogen or oxygen or <laughs> whatever it is? And my brother said, no, you you got to add some electrolyte or something. Uh, put some salt in it, right? So you put salt in it. Yeah, you start seeing bubbles, Yeah, right? That was the joy of this thing. Then, on one occasion, I remember one of my father's friends. He had a relative into who were making glass prisms and things like that. So they gave us two prisms, and I think uh, two slabs of uh, you know uh, clear glass, and that helped us to do our refraction experiments. Right? That helped us to see uh, the spectrum. Right? Then uh, taking a magnifying glass and burning paper. So we had ample opportunity of unsupervised time where we could explore on our own. Right? The consequences may be slightly disastrous, but it never be the end of the world. Because curiosity doesn't lead you to murder somebody. Hmm. No, it doesn't. Not yet, I hope. And I hope it never will. So, that is something that needs to be nurtured. Unfortunately, you can't force a child to be curious. No, it is something that comes from within. You provide the child with the opportunity, right, to question and ask, right? 
and encourage if he asks you. If he asks, well and good, he should get replies. Or he should be taken to some uh, individual or whatever from where he can get the reply. So, so on these lines, where you already shared with me earlier about your uh, uh, experience when you were a kid about the prism experiment. So I want you to you know share it again and tell me what exactly has uh, changed your perspective about you know uh, the nature of curiosity, the nature of independent thought one should have, or what what kind of an impact that particular situation has had in your. Okay, uh, right. Uh, I think it was ninth class, you know. Yeah, and uh, we had physics lab, and uh, my experiment was. Uh, angle of minimum deviation of a prism. So, uh, I, I got a, a drawing board, you know, small size, and uh, full-scape paper. I got the prism issued and got on with the experiment. Now, we had done the theory by then. So, I knew that uh, the angle of minimum deviation, I'll get a, you know, sort of a a relationship between the angle of incidence, right, and uh, the angle of deviation. And it would be parabolic in nature, right, and the lowest point would give me the angle of minimum deviation. So, I started the experiment, and uh, I, uh, I think 15 degrees to 30 degrees, 45 degrees, 60 degrees, you know, something like that. We took five, six readings so that we get a smooth curve. Now, unfortunately, the lowest point of that parabola, uh, I didn't get a parabola really. I I got a blip, so to say, that instead uh, the lowest point, right? It wasn't uh, exactly where it should have been. It was higher than the adjoining points. Yeah, there's a sudden. Now th that was like. Uh, I was quite surprised, but there was no more time left. So the experiment I just submitted, right? And uh, that was the end of the story. Now the teacher would evaluate these in the evening and hand back uh, copies with uh, practical copies with the you know fullscape uh, paper attached to it, etc., etc. Next day, uh, when we had the physics class. Uh, we had Mr. Mystery teaching us uh, physics and chemistry. So he uh, came into class and started off with, you'll be glad to know that we have an Einstein amongst us. And uh, he did an experiment yesterday with uh, this minimum deviation and he got a curve like this and he actually drew the curve on the board. Mm. Everybody's curious, and it looked like mine, but I was hoping it wasn't. <laughs> and then he said, you want to know who it is? Pandey, stand up. Yeah, we have uh, Einstein. Mm -hmm. And everybody started sniggering, and uh, he, 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 I really felt bad about it, but uh, yeah, that was it. So red-faced me, and uh, everybody looking at me and giggling. And uh, he said, and for this, he's going to stay back after school and complete the experiment again. 
fine. Uh, we gave class finished. Some of my friends, you know, they started ribbing me, and those who were not very friendly, ever they were taunting me. Like, phew, terrible. <laughs> anyway, school uh, ended in the evening, and I went to the lab. He was teaching his daughter, and uh, he gave me the prism. Uh, full skip paper, I had to take the board myself and I redid the experiment. I got the same thing. I went back, I said, sir, this is what I got. He said, are you mad? Take another sheet and this is the last sheet, you better get it right. I went back, once again I drew all the angles, angles of incidence and so on and so forth. Completed the experiment, plotted it on the graph paper. I still got the same thing. I went to him. He said, no, you better get the thing right or you tell me why you're getting it wrong. I sat down. I was away from them. He was teaching his daughter. and I don't know, but I didn't know where to start at that age, you know. Uh, what's your age? Uh... 15, 14, 15, 16, you know, in that region. And uh, you're not really, uh, I think, geared to reasoning out that much. I mean, you may be reasoning out, that's fine. And I was totally nonplussed. I don't know, but somehow, call it a miracle, and <laughs> that's, that's what I feel. A voice from above, somewhere, wherever in the mind, wherever, told me just measure the angles. It was supposed to be an equilateral prism. And to my surprise, it wasn't. So, I picked up my sheet with fair amount of confidence, fair amount of fear. <laughs> I went to him. I said, sir, it's probably because the angles... They are not all 60. He straight away retorted, what rubbish. We've had these prisms for years. I don't know how many students have completed the experiments. Hmm. right? And not one of them has ever complained. Not one of them has got it wrong. And you come and tell me it's wrong. Hmm. I've taken my protractor along. He said, give me that protractor. He measured it. After measuring all the three angles, he put the prism and the protector down on the table, stood up, he said, show me your hand. I thought I've had it. <laughs> He's going to pick up the steel scale of his and give me a whack across my knuckles, hopefully. Mm. Right? I was hoping it would be on the palm. That hurts less, you know. Knuckles, it really hurts, hurts bad. And with a steel ruler or steel scale, it really can be terrible. He shook my hand and he said, Are you the Ashok Pandey who came first in KG1? I said, Yes, sir. Um, he's, he's talking about something like 1955 and we are in the year 1964. Hmm. I said, Yes, sir. So he says, That was the only year my daughter came second. <laughs> Yeah. I wasn't too sure, but uh, I was like, you know, on cloud nine, mm -hmm. that 
thank God I didn't get a beating or didn't have to repeat the experiment again. And next day, of course, he told the class that we do have an Einstein in our class. Pandey, will you stand up? He was able to tell me that the angles were not all 60 because of which his results were wrong. But it's surprising that we've had this prism for so many years and nobody ever complained. Now, of course, I was beaming that day and all my friends were like, yes, that's the spirit man. <laughs> you know, sort of that kind of a feeling. And uh, yeah, it was good. But then looking back, it, uh, you know, sort of provided me with a little bit of a learning experience. Number one, be honest with your observations no matter what. Why? If you do not conform, you may be on the edge of a major breakthrough. You never know. And right. if you're not on, a, on the edge of a major breakthrough, you're on the verge of a fantastic and phenomenal learning experience. So integrity in professionalism is what I picked up from that episode. The other thing was, and I think it's equally important is that to appreciate another person right, yeah. for what he is. Right. I mean, I, I, I was about to tell that the beautiful part of that was the teacher is willing to stand corrected. Yes. And he's happy about it. Yes. And that's also one of the yes. you know, nice things about that story. True. Yeah. And I think uh, it may have crept in in my, you know, overall character that, yeah, learn to appreciate other people when they do make an effort, right? And encourage people to make an effort as well. See, episodes like this, small incidents like this, they mold our character and they leave a lasting impression. I mean, I've always looked back with the greatest of reverence for that teacher. Of course, unfortunately, I don't think he is no more. But uh, or rather, I think he is no more. Because a few years ago, I'd inquired about him. He was in Pune. And uh, he was unable to speak. I, uh, I don't know if he was able to remember anything about school. Because some of the students did go and visit him, but... Uh, it, they could hardly communicate. Uh, his daughter is uh, a professor in one of the uh, universities in Pune in some place, I believe. But uh, I still have a wish. I don't know if I'll be able to see him, but I would like to go back and meet his daughter once. It's like, you know, paying obeisance to a great teacher. True. And I would love to do that. I'll be honored to do that. And the advent of internet, is it making us smarter or dumber? Uh, it's making us uh, craftier. <laughs> <laughs> what does it craftier? Craftier means more cunning. Okay. Right? Uh, the plethora of information available is killing original thought, you know. In general, I'm not saying it, it does the same for everybody. No, there mm. will be a lot of people who are actually different, who stand to benefit, right? 
and stand to gain much, much more and contribute much more, right? right? Contribute b- back to society. But in general, the there's a tendency to you, you just do cut and paste instead of any original thought. And the biggest tragedy is that on a particular occasion, I remember it was a research scholar and uh, we had this student research committee members uh, and the scholar was to make a presentation. Now, the write-up was such that the person had actually lifted images of text from different sources and pasted them. So they were all in different fonts, etc. Now, that was like, I thought, a very bad start to a very important stage in one's career. And if that is going to be the general tendency, then I think that is tragic. But, I mean, let's not be too apprehensive about the situation Mm. because there are always two sides of the coin. And there will be people who benefit. There will be people who will be able to contribute better to society, right? And there will be people contrary to that. So, I hope that... Yeah, that's addresses the issue.